Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. We learn some important things here in these verses at the start of Matthew chapter 12 about Jesus and his way. And we learn those things by way of a contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a particular sect within Judaism that had a very strict way, a very tedious adherence to their customs kind of way. And the thing to note about that is that those customs they had and and the many regulations in place around those customs were largely of their own design. The Pharisees had started actually with what might have been very good intentions to protect the Jewish way of life from the paganizing influence of, of the Greek and the Roman cultures. But once they started generating human rules, it became hard to contain. It's like a rule-generating machine, really, that just kept spitting out more and more detail and slowly then obscured what exactly it was that they were originally trying to do. By Jesus' day in Matthew 12 here, the Pharisees were by that point just trying to protect their particular sect, their particular way of Judaism. They had fashioned and constructed a new religion, really, with way more than biblical teachings to it, so much so that the actual words of God were getting buried under the teachings of men. 
And it had gotten so convoluted and, and so burdensome that it, that it really did amount not just to a new religion, but to an elite religion, only for those who could follow their very harsh and, and very complicated system of rules. Jesus, on the other hand, is being followed around by all kinds of people in this narrative of Matthew that we've been reading through in recent weeks. Do you you remember the the number and the kind of people that Jesus has been attracting? It's like fishermen and and tax collectors and and soldiers and sinners and and people with demons and and those having seizures and deaf people and blind people and lame people and and lepers and, and Gentiles too. By the way, Romans and people from the Decapolis and and from east of the Jordan and from from up north in Syria. In Mark's Gospel, we read of foreigners from Edom and Tyre and Sidon as well uh, in the crowds following Jesus at the time of Matthew 12 here. All in all, the crowds around Jesus are the very opposite, it would seem, of, of the elitist and the strictly most Jewish of the Jewish religion of the Pharisees. And so we see this great contrast in scriptures like this between Jesus, who calls himself here the Lord of the Sabbath, and these Pharisees who, who are kind of like the lawyers of the Sabbath with all of their rules. They'd constructed all kinds of rules around things like the Sabbath, beyond, way beyond, really, what, what Scripture actually said. And, and, and so now they take great offence that Jesus is here and Jesus isn't adhering to all of those rules. And the text here wants to put us at the interface of that conflict between these two contrasting ways as they clash together. No doubt so that it can try to get us to identify which way of seeing things is right. And the case example here, as I say, is this matter of the Sabbath, which we should briefly consider before we start to get into it. Literally, the Sabbath is the seventh, the seventh day of the Hebrew week, which on today's Western calendar would be Saturday. And God's law about the Sabbath comes from Exodus 20. The fourth and the longest of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the instruction. It's instruction from God towards rest. Rest, that we would stop all of our earthly pursuits one day in seven and just devote that day to the Lord our God. That's what holy means when it says God blessed it and made it holy. Devoted to God, such that we will find rest. By the time of Matthew 12, the Jews had developed an elaborate system of do's and don'ts to try to protect that fourth commandment, and particularly around what might constitute labour or or, or work. I mean, if the Sabbath requires us to stop all of our uh, labour or work, then defining what constitutes labour or work is uh, important, right? 
fire up the rule machine, because now every hypothetical scenario has to be considered about what work is. And in the process of trying to make sure that nobody breaks God's commandment by working on the Sabbath, so many human rules were generated that everyone slowly but surely forgot the actual purpose of the commandment, that we dedicate that time to God and reflect and honour him and all that he has done for us and still does for us and will do for us, such that through that process we will find rest. You see, it's quite possible to follow the letter of the law and miss its intent. And that's what's going on with these Pharisees in Jesus' day about things like the Sabbath. It's just the same really as today. We could legalistically, quite happily, not do any work whatsoever and yet forget completely to spend the time with God and find that spiritual kind of rest that the commandment originally intended for us. So too, that's what's happening with these Pharisees. They were so legalistic about all the rules that they generated around God's law that they were missing what God's law was actually supposed to be about. Look at the clash of ways here then in this text, in this case example of the Sabbath between Jesus and the Pharisees in verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Not lawful, that is, according to the human rules and regulations that had been constructed around the Sabbath. God had said in Exodus 20 to cease from labour and work on the seventh day, and sure enough, after that, Jewish oral traditions started firing up and slowly developed to try to flesh out what that should look like in practice, generating all kinds of rules to keep on the Sabbath. When it was eventually later codified into the Jewish Mishnah, there were 39 types of labour forbidden on the Sabbath by those human-generated laws. Uh, Jesus' disciples potentially just broke half a dozen or so in the eyes of these Pharisees. Plucking heads of grain could be construed as reaping grain. Reaping was forbidden in those 39 Sabbath laws they'd come up with. If they're walking through the grain fields to begin with, I mean, they might have even travelled further than the rules allowed for on the Sabbath. And carrying the heads of grain with them as they walked along might have been another breach on top of that one. Uh, so, you know, say if they, if, they, if they took with them and carried more than a lamb's mouthful was the rule, a lamb's mouthful of grain home with them, well, that would have been another breach. In Luke's account of this here that we're reading, we're told that they rubbed the heads of grain in their hand. So threshing, technically, that's threshing, and threshing is forbidden on the Sabbath according to these rules. You cannot remove the kernel from the husk. Uh, if uh, they uh, blew away those husks, after that, that's actually winnowing, and winnowing is forbidden. Mm on the Sabbath. And presumably at the very least they selected the edible portion from the inedible chaff. That's also forbidden. 
whether chewing would be in breach, uh, according to the regulation against grinding grain, well, I don't know. Who's to say? It's getting hard, isn't it? But I would hope innocent of, of sifting flour uh, and kneading and baking as they ate it and digested it. But I don't know. Do you, do you see what happens? Do you get the sense of these man-made laws around what constitutes work on the Sabbath? And more importantly, how harshly they could be applied. And yet, Jesus doesn't respond to the Pharisees in terms of such man-made laws that they're pushing. He, he rather defends his disciples instead according to God's law in Scripture. He takes them into Scripture and he takes them to God's law. And curiously, in regard to how... In certain circumstances, in the Bible, God's law has somehow acceptably been broken. Verse 3, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but, but only for the priests? It's in 1 Samuel 21, if you want to dig it up later. When David and his men were on the run from King Saul, they came to Nob, and Ahimelech the priest gave them the consecrated showbread to eat that according to God's law and instructions in Leviticus 24 was intended specifically for the priests to eat. Jesus is right here. The letter of God's instructions about that priestly bread was contravened by David. And yet it seems to be okay. Jesus goes on in verse 5, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Numbers 28 requires the priests to make offerings on the Sabbath, burnt offerings, grain offerings, drink offerings, every single Sabbath. While everyone else is resting, they labour, which would profane the Sabbath, at least in terms of the letter of that Sabbath law God gave us, that there should be rest from a person's routine weekly work, one day in seven, but but somehow that doesn't bring upon the, the, these priests... It, any guilt, Jesus explains. And now here's what he's getting at in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I think there's a couple of things we're supposed to catch about Jesus' defence of his disciples here as he leads to the conclusion that they are guiltless. First, he seems to be building a case towards the lesser in terms of the crime involved. David and his men ate the priest's consecrated bread and, and that seems to be okay. The priests, in turn, have to continue to work every single Sabbath to maintain the right standing of these people before God and and even that seems to be okay. Jesus' disciples are just eating a few heads of wheat. It's nothing, is it, in compared to those other two things? 
But secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, Jesus also seems to be building a case towards the greater in terms of himself. Someone greater than David is here. Something greater than what those priests do is here. Something greater even than the temple of Israel is unfolding before their very eyes and they are oblivious to it. These Pharisees want to pursue Jesus over a a tiny technical reading of a a human-generated law around their Sabbath. But the Lord of the Sabbath is here. And they can't see it. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. He hasn't let this go yet. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. I honestly don't know what to make of this one. On the one hand, I'm not sure there'd be anything in their man-made laws about healing in all those Sabbath rules that the Pharisees had generated up until this point. So so maybe it's just genuine intellectual inquiry, like, hmm, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That's a good one. Let's talk about that. Does, Does healing constitute work? But on the other hand, their question is outrageous. Is it lawful to heal? (laughs) Seriously? Like seriously? For Jesus to heal this man, which they already by now presume that he can, by the way, it's nothing short of the work of God. But they want to question its legality according to their customs? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other one. The Pharisees are so tied up in their their own rules and customs that they seem to be uncaring. What kind of shepherds are these for the people of Israel? Jesus could very well have just waited one day to heal this poor man, don't you reckon? Just wait one day and avoid this clash altogether, couldn't he? But he seems to want to provoke this clash. He wants to bring them and and us too. He wants to bring everyone into his teaching here to draw out more clearly than ever what these Pharisees have completely lost sight of. First, that, that by pursuing the letter of the law, we can miss its whole purpose. And second, by creating our own set of rules, we can bury God's law. And third, this whole idea of Sabbath or rest And the very idea of God's law altogether, for that matter, it's all meant to direct us towards what is good for us. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. I don't think it's any accident that we're reading of these clashes over the the Sabbath immediately after where Jesus left off at the end of chapter 11 last week. 
Come to me, he says. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the purpose of Sabbath for us, to receive rest from our labour in God. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus, for six days every week. No. No, he doesn't say that there, does he? No. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke is an old word that we, we don't, I mean, we don't use that word much anymore, do we? It's a piece of timber that connects over the necks of cattle to join them together as need be as they plough fields and, and tow carts and so on. And, and Jesus wants to bind us to him like that so that we walk alongside him, walk in his way as we go through life. In discipleship under Jesus, there is rest for our souls. When we learn to walk with Jesus, the spiritual purpose of Sabbath is like a wide open field in front of us. We will have rest for our souls because he has come to release us from heavy burdens. Something of Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. The Lord of the Sabbath has come. Let's balance that thought, though, with this one. Nowhere here in our text of chapter 12 does does Jesus seem to encourage anyone to break the actual Sabbath law of God, that, that one day in seven should be devoted to God. What he seems to be getting at is its intent. And I guess the the simplicity, the the purity of its intent, and therefore the kind of human baggage that's gunked up all around it along the years, uh, that we would need to scrape away again if we were to recover its original intent for us. But even so, that weekly Sabbath routine is is surely pointing us all the time to something greater and and more lasting that that ultimately we need to enter into. The kind of rest that, that... Eventually, I mean, there it is, black and white. Eventually it just has to be found in Jesus. Come to me, he says. It's when we learn to walk in Jesus' way that we really start to find rest in our souls. And perhaps the more we learn to walk in discipleship to Jesus, the the more we'll find rest for our souls. I mean, such is the way of, of that wooden yoke idea. Resisting it doesn't go down so well. But learning to walk with that, uh, that allows us to, to move forwards in, in peace. The Pharisees can't see any of this stuff. The Sabbath is about drawing near to Creator God, who in front of them they cannot see. The Lord of the Sabbath who, who wants to give us rest, to, to restore us. Not, not David, not priest, not temple. This is the one who dwells in temple. Come down now in human form to bring in for us rest. 
And yet in their hyper-religious zeal, the Pharisees want to destroy him. Of all people, they want to destroy him, verse 14. The other side to Jesus that we've got to factor into all this gets fleshed out a bit more in the next part of, of our text. This, this Lord of the Sabbath, who, who's greater than David and greater than priests and greater than temple and, and can heal with just the power of his word, is, is also gentle and lowly, as he said at the end of chapter 11 last week. See again now chapter 12 and verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, aware that the Pharisees were trying to figure out how to destroy him now, he withdrew from there. He withdrew. With all the power, we would assume, of of being able to shrivel those Pharisees if he had chosen to do that, just just the opposite to the way he unshriveled that man's hand. No, 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 he just withdrew. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's from Isaiah 42, if you want to follow it up later. The gentle, lowly servant of God. We might speculate what power he could have wielded against those Pharisees, but but he didn't come for that. He didn't come to start a protest or or a riot or, or, or a public uprising. He... He came just as was prophesied long ago as a gentle and lowly servant to bring people into his rest. And he'll bring in people from all nations. He won't exclude all but the most self-righteous of the most self-righteous of Jews, as these Pharisees tend to do. He'll humbly just call people to rest too. He's not going to be forceful or superior or harsh like they tend to be. He'll be gentle and gracious towards those of us who are struggling and wrestling and fallen and weakened, the bruised reeds and the smouldering wicks. He came for the broken, for the wounded sinners, but, 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 but not to break us or extinguish us altogether. No, 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 no. To nurture us into this rest that he came to give us. The Pharisees over there are, are aloof and, and thinking themselves to be above Everyone else, Jesus is gentle and lowly, just as he told us last week at the end of chapter 11. And 750 odd years earlier, as God had said through Isaiah, that that would be exactly how he would first come. Those then are the two models, really, in this scripture, the two radically different ways are being set out for us here. The Lord, who, who actually has total authority and, and yet the lowly heart of a servant, stooping down uh, so gently and tenderly, graciously calling people and guiding people into God's kingdom. And the lawmakers, who, who, who lord it over everyone else and, and push them all out of their elite little group. 
You see, the Pharisees want to weigh people down. That's, that's what they boil down to. They want to weigh people down with all their regulations and bind them like captives to their complex system. Jesus wants to set people free from prisons like that. They uh, have a way that is harsh and rigid and completely inflexible. Jesus' way is gentle and, and it allows for grace for the weak. The Pharisees have built up and they're, and they're dead set trying to maintain an, an elite little religion. Jesus is presenting a religion for the masses. This, this is for anyone who will just come to him to find this rest. They are excluding people. He is including and inviting all kinds of people. That, they want to seem good in everything, though. He, on the other hand, wants to do good. And at the end of the day, this isn't just narrative about Jesus and the Pharisees. I mean, it, it puts us at that conflict and wants us to choose. Clearly, Jesus wants us to figure out who we want to follow, and, and you must decide that. I'm going to assume that for most of us, that bit's actually a no-brainer. The, the, the decision point is, is a no-brainer. I'd rather we spend the last few minutes moving on and, and just seeing if we can't then dig a bit deeper under this decision point in front of us. There's a couple of good questions, I think, down there underneath all of these things. First of all, which model do we think we have come to in God? Which of these two models do we think we have come to in our God? Do you think that God is is like these Pharisees, that he is harsh and, and clinical and legalistic, that he would like to overwhelm you with, with unreasonable and, and unattainable demands because he wants to push you out of his kingdom? Do you think of God as, as just kind of gleefully waiting to crush you for the tiniest of your sins? Or have you come to a God who would stoop down so low for you and so patiently and so loving for you uh, the way that he did in Jesus. Jesus who came not to break or extinguish but to to restore and gather and, and rekindle us in hope. And the second question we might ask then is which of these two ways would best match our lives? Which of these two models best matches our life? Do you look like Jesus? Are you yoked to Jesus such such that you walk in his way through life, his way of gentleness and, and his way of graciousness towards others? Or are you a bit harsh towards others like these Pharisees? Inflexible ungracious, content to to, to neglect them and uh, maybe even override their needs, all these other people around you? They are good questions, aren't they? And I do think we need to ask them. I do think that's why we find ourselves here in this text. It's not just narrative. We are called to make a decision, but I think to then take that decision and figure out who it is we think we are following and and how it is we would like to be walking. Is our view of God the gentle servant kind of God that Jesus showed us? And are we actually walking like that ourselves? Bonus question, if you're up to it. (laughs) 
Are those first two questions related? Such that if we do search and find ourselves as being harsh and uncaring towards others in, in certain ways, is that perhaps because in, in some ways we've been framing our lives around a God we think is harsh and uncaring towards us? And if we could grasp even more this, this rest that's on offer in Jesus from, from our gentle and gracious God, might we then also soften that little bit more towards others? I'm going to leave all those questions with you, but not before I pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scripture And this one today in Matthew 12, we pray though that you'd help us to get underneath the narrative somehow this week, that you help us get beyond the text and and to, to get deep into what Jesus is trying to lead us into here. And Father, if we're honest, we do know that the simple truth is that there is some level of Pharisee in all of us. And this is why you came. Please forgive us, Father, for being so wrapped up at times in what we're trying to do and what we're trying to protect that, that we miss and misunderstand your law. Forgive us too for, for being harsh and uncaring towards others. Teach us instead the way of Jesus. Oh, how gracious of you to, to come down to us like that and, and to do everything needed to bring rest for our souls. Remind us then always, Father, of your grace to us, that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be restored to you for all eternity. And let that truth generate true spiritual rest in our souls, rest that that just keeps flowing, springing up and flowing out into our relationships with others. May Jesus' way be our way too. For your glory we ask this in his name. Amen.